It's episode five of Wood Housekeeping. It's episode five of Wood Housekeeping. It's episode five of Wood Housekeeping. Show five of Wood Housekeeping. It's a show. It's a show. It's a show. It's a show. It's a show about Woodhouse. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Pelham Grenville Woodhouse. And this is the tale of William Tell. And this is the tale of William Tell. And this is the tale of William Tell. We'll tell. Told again. Welcome to Wood Housekeeping, the podcast about the humorous author P.G. Woodhouse. My name's Ian Coburn, and with or without guests, without on this occasion. I look at his books in chronological order, and in this fifth episode I look at his fifth book, William Tell Told Again, his only book for children, or at least for younger children. The school stories that constitute all four of his previous books and a few more yet to come are usually not classified as children's books but are more in a sort of prototype young adult's bracket. At any rate, it's his only children's book according to his own account of his oeuvre. It was published in November 1904 for the Christmas market by his usual publishers A&C Black. As the title implies, it's a retelling of the William Tell legend, so the usual spoiler warning hopefully will be less necessary this time, assuming most of you are familiar with the basic details of the legend. It's the one with the apple and the arrow. The Edwardian age was a golden age of illustrated children's books, the age of Arthur Rackham and Edmund Dulac and Kay Nielsen, where advances in technology allowed for beautiful full-colour illustrations, so publishers commissioned fresh illustrations for every classic children's story they could think of. The illustrations for this book are by the fairly obscure Philip Dadd, who is no Arthur Rackham, but notable to me for his distinguished lineage. He was nephew to two famed artists, the painter Richard Dadd of the fairy fellas master stroke fame, and the great illustrator Kate Greenaway. He sadly died in the First World War. His illustrations to this book are nice, but in my opinion not worth framing on your wall or sticking on Pinterest. In William Tell Told Again, the tale is in fact told twice, in the prose story written by Woodhouse and in a series of rhyming verses written by someone called John Houghton. These verses were printed alongside each illustration. The first one hammers home the point, in case, like me, you missed it, that the title is meant as wordplay, tell, tale, told, and so on. It's surprising Woodhouse wasn't asked, or perhaps wasn't allowed, to write these verses himself, as they are extremely similar in style to the verses he was writing for newspapers and magazines at the time. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by the similarity. Probably all light humorous verse of the time had the same sort of quality, which makes it hard to attribute authorship when verses appeared anonymously. Houghton's verses aren't very funny to me, to the extent that I'm not actually going to quote from them in this podcast. There are too many bad puns, such as application instead of application. I can't help thinking Woodhouse could have done better. But if this book was churned out quickly, then maybe the division of labour helped get it out on time. Woodhouse had a pretty hefty workload in 1904, with his salaried work for the Globe newspaper, the public school stories and novels, and the freelance poems and humorous sketches and we don't know how many things he wrote that failed to get published. And he already had one eye on the stage. Speaking of which... Dedication! The book is dedicated to Biddy O'Sullivan, daughter of his actor friends Dennis and Elizabeth. A note on names. Until recently, nobody tried to pronounce names in English the same as they are rendered in other languages. You would have people talk about Don Quixote and Don Juan... So the legend was, and is still called, the legend of William Tell in English, not Wilhelm. Because of this, I am assuming that Woodhouse attended his British readers to pronounce their names in a natural English way when reading this book aloud. For example, Walter, not Walter. H. 
Hedwig, not Hedvig, so I will be following this convention in my pronunciations in this episode. William Tell is an old Swiss legend. I'm not going to go into the history of the actual events in Switzerland at the time the story is set, as my only source would be Wikipedia, and you can read that as well as I can. Suffice it to say there was indeed some friction between the Swiss regions and the Holy Roman Empire at the start of the 14th century, but there is no evidence to suggest the specific events told in the tale of William Tell have any real basis in fact. The first extant versions of the story date from the 1470s and the more detailed version on which Woodhouse's version is clearly based was written by Aegidius Tishudi around 1570. We don't know how to pronounce this word. And by the way, he sticks very faithfully to the story. First, Woodhouse tells us that Switzerland was owned by the Emperor of Austria who sent one Hermann Gessler to govern it. Again, according to Wikipedia, this Gessler is not a true historical personage, but there was a historical family of that name, one of whom was such a tyrant that the name Gessler became a byword for tyranny. In the book, Gessler loves to tax the people, and Woodhouse makes it relatable to his young readers by specifying taxes on biscuits and jam and buns and lemonade. It wouldn't be the last time that Woodhouse was preoccupied with taxes in his life or in his work. The people resolved to send a delegation to remonstrate with Governor Gessler. They appointed Walter First, who had red hair and looked fierce, Werner Stauffacher, who had grey hair and was always wondering how he ought to pronounce his name, and Arnold of Mautfau. The complaint is received with the utmost politeness by Gessler, but we are not fooled. Even the youngest readers will see that Gessler is toying with these people as a cat toys with a mouse. He brings out boiling oil and a very distressing scene of torture is lightly touched upon. As to whether this was suitable reading for children, you have to remember at the time among the most popular children's reading matter were the unexpurgated tales of the Grimm brothers and Hans Andersen, where both killing and infliction of intense pain were par for the course. After the three men hastily withdraw their complaint, the governor makes them pay a fee for his time and for the expense of the boiling oil, and they go away to report on their failure. Without explaining about the methods Gessler used on them, they simply say to their comrades their arguments failed to win over the tyrant. One Arnold of Sewer rebukes them for the failing and suggests they weren't tactful enough. This character will recur in the book as an exemplar of deluded self-importance, humbug, excessive criticism of others and what I can only call passive aggression, though nobody called it that in 1904. Of course, if you will go rushing into the governor's presence... But we didn't rush, said Walter first, shouting out that you want the taxes abolished. But we didn't shout, said Walter first. I really cannot speak if I am to be constantly interrupted, said Arnold of Sewer severely. Anyway, Arnold insists on trying himself with the same painful result. So it is decided a rebellion is indicated and that one William Tell, a local character who is not present at the meeting, should be the one to lead said rebellion. They burst into the grand old Swiss chant which runs as follows. He's a jolly good fellow. This is an example of a vein of humour that Woodhouse minds throughout the book, that of taking things that are either fairly universal or in reality specific to Britain or to the English-speaking world, and pretending that these things are rather traditional Swiss customs. This reminds the reader we are in Switzerland without requiring Woodhouse to do any research into actual Swiss customs of the 14th century. Another example later on is, My bowstring has bust. Bust was what all Swiss boys said when they meant broken. Some previous exploits of Tell are briefly related. 
He publicly rebuked the governor when he met him once and helped somebody else escape from the governor by rowing him to safety in a ferocious storm. So for these two incidents, Gessler already has it in for Tell. Tell is also an expert marksman with the bow and arrow and wins every competition. People say of him, Tell is quite the pot hunter, meaning by the last word, a man who always went in for every prize and always won it. And Tell would say, yes, truly am I a pot hunter, for I hunt to fill the family pot. In that extract, Woodhouse helpfully explains the meaning of the phrase pot hunter as used in the title of his very first book, while introducing a fresh play on words. The conspirators discuss who is to make overtures to William Tell for his support in a pub called the Glass and Glacier. I like the humorous assumption that pub naming conventions are the same throughout the world as they are in good old England. It was not unlikely that Tell might refuse to be their leader. The worst of a revolution is that, if it fails, the leader is always executed as an example to the rest, and many people object to being executed, however much it may set a good example to their friends. Indeed, Tell does refuse to directly get involved in starting a revolution. Their discussion is a sort of duel of aphorisms. A heavy heart, said Tell, will not grow light with words. Yet words, I said, might lead us on to deeds. And that brings them to the nub. Tell doesn't want to incite foment with speeches, because he sees himself as a man of deeds, not words, so he says he will not refuse if the people call on him to perform specific specified acts. Ulrich the Smith rapped for silence on the table. Gentlemen, he said, our friend Mr. Klaus von der Flue will now read a paper on governors, their drawbacks and how to get rid of them. Tell and his wife Hedwig have a mild argument about Tell's dangerous way of life hunting on the mountains. The mountain has no terror for her children. I am a child of the mountain. You certainly are a child. We return to Gessler. Not only is he greedy for taxes, he likes to torment the people for the fun of it by forbidding everything that is pleasant or enjoyable. But he had run out of things to ban, so he has a new idea to oppress the people. He will stick up a pole in a meadow, put his hat on the top of it so that the pole represents himself, and the people must bow and scrape in front of it whenever they pass it, and soldiers will be stationed to make sure they do. He summons the people to hear him make the announcement of this new policy. Here is a speech. Note the odd choices of very specific threats to hecklers, which range from the simply cruel to the highly surreal. Ladies and gentlemen, he began, a voice from the crowd. Speak up! Ladies and gentlemen, he began again in a louder voice, if I could catch the man who said speak up, I would have him bitten in the neck by wild elephants. Applause. I have called you to this place today to explain to you my reason for putting up a pole, on top of which is one of my caps, in the meadow just outside the city gates. It is this. You all, I know, respect and love me. Here he paused for the audience to cheer, but as they remained quite silent, he went on. You would all, I know, like to come to my palace every day and do reverence to me. A voice. No, no. If I could catch the man who said no, no, I would have him stung on the soles of the feet by pink scorpions. And if he was the same man who said speak up a little while ago, the number of scorpions should be doubled. Loud applause. As I was saying before I was interrupted, I know you would like to come to my palace and do reverence to me there, but as you are many and space is limited, I am obliged to refuse you that pleasure. However, being anxious not to disappoint you, I have set up my cap in the meadow, and you may do reverence to that. In fact, you must. Everybody is to look on that cap as if it were me. A voice. It ain't so ugly as you. If I could catch the man who made that remark, I would have him tied up and teased by trained blue bottles. Deafening applause. 
In fact, to put the matter briefly, if anybody crosses that meadow without bowing down before that cap, my soldiers will arrest him, and I will have him pecked on the nose by infuriated blackbirds. The people respond to this edict by avoiding the meadow altogether, so they don't have to perform the degrading rigmarole of showing deference to a pole. The soldiers are left with nothing to do but stand there while the mocking people sing at them Where Did You Get That Hat? a popular late 19th century vaudeville song. Even when they are obliged to go through the meadow they get round the problem by having the sacristan ring a bell for prayers so the people are kneeling as required by the act but in reality are kneeling to God rather than to the governor or to the governor's effigy. The mockery of the soldiers standing guard reaches the point where the people throw an egg at them prompting in the rhyming part of the book a terrible pun about foreign yoke, which makes me glad that the rhymes were not written by Woodhouse. Then Tell walks past, Tell being unaware of the new law or any of the hoo-ha concerning it. So the guards accost him for not kneeling in front of the pole. When he refuses to do this and tries to leave, he is hit by a guard's pike, and he strikes the guard in retaliation. This is the cue for the populace who are still present to riot, and in the confusion, the guards forget to dole out the penalty to William Tell of being pecked by infuriated blackbirds. In the brawl, the annoying character Arnold of Sewer is lecturing people on how fighting should be done and so naturally gets his comeuppance in the form of a pike in his side, which leads him to crawl away off home to recuperate. Then Tell fires an arrow to shoot the hat off the top of the pole. The text says he does this to stop the fighting, but I'm not sure that's meant ironically or not, as such an act of revolution is hardly likely to calm matters down, but it does distract the people and cause them to whoop and cheer. They urge Tell to make a speech, and he starts to make a stumbling, halting one, in which he explicitly calls for the Austrians to be overthrown. At that moment, Gessler himself shows up. Woodhouse uses his regular device of letting a character in this case Gessler, know what's been going on in his absence by having another character tell it to him in his own idiosyncratic way. So we, the reader, hear the story a second time, but in a way that is interesting and ideally humorous. In this case, it's one of the soldiers who explains the situation to Gessler in his rough and clownish manner. Now comes the most familiar part of the story, indeed the only part that really matters, the motif on which the fame of the name William Tell rests. Gessler insists Tell shoot an arrow through an apple a hundred yards away, as his son Walter has boasted he can do, the nasty twist being that the apple will be resting on his son Walter's head. Walter himself has such faith in his dad he is supremely unconcerned by this, but William is less sanguine. He says he would rather die, to which Gessler retorts he will die anyway, and his son too, if he does not do it. Gessler continues to talk in a tone of mockery. Here's a specimen of his dialogue. You see now, he said, the danger of carrying arms. I don't know if you have ever noticed it, but arrows very often recoil on the man who carries them. The only man who has any business to possess a weapon is the ruler of a country, myself, for instance. A low, common fellow, if you will excuse the description, like yourself, only grows proud through being armed, and so offends those above him. But, of course, it's no business of mine. I'm only telling you what I think about it. Personally, I like to encourage my subjects to shoot. That is why I am giving you such a splendid mark to shoot at. You see, Tell? Woodhouse does not have Tell fire straight away. Tension is built up with various speechifying and delays, though surely every reader knows what the outcome of the shot will be. And finally the shot takes place with the expected result. It was a master shot. It was very nearly a master Walter shot, said Rosselman the priest. The governor takes Tell aside and asks him why he put a second arrow in his quiver. 
Having recklessly promised Tell his life is safe, Tell informs him that the second arrow was to kill Gessler if his shot had been unsuccessful and Walter had been killed. Gessler decrees that he be sent to a dungeon. In the only other big scene in the story, Tell is being transported in a boat through rough waters by Gessler and his men. The boat runs into peril to the extent that only Tell's sailing prowess can save them, so he is unbound and given the helm. When he has sailed them to safety, he leaps to the safety of a rock and shoots Gessler dead. This is the only example I can think of of a human killing another human in the works of Woodhouse, but of course it doesn't really count as the story is not Woodhouse's own. The death of the governor is cue for the uprising to begin in earnest that very night, and the Swiss win independence. Woodhouse explains that they achieved this thanks to the fortunate coincidence that the Austrian emperor was killed by some rivals at the same time leading to such confusion and turmoil in Austria that no time or manpower could be spared for quelling the Swiss uprising, and so the story ends on an uncharacteristically serious note which is fitting as the legend is essentially a very serious story, and Woodhouse knew the power of the story depended on the reader taking it seriously to an extent, though we may laugh in passing along the way at the human foibles of the characters. This concludes our look at William Telltold again, an appropriately short episode about a very short book. Next time we'll be back to the world of the public school with the novel The Head of Kays, for which I'll be joined by my brother Josh, and hopefully these solo episodes will become rarer if the podcast gains momentum as intended. Thanks to Acast, Wikipedia, Woodhouse Scholars and Authors, and to all you wonderful listeners. Please spread the word about the show if you like it, and feel free to follow the show on social media. Happy Woodhouse reading. Where did you get that hat? Where did you get that tile? Isn't it a knobby one in just the proper style? I should like to have one just the same as that. Wherever I go, they shout hello. Where did you get that hat? Wherever I go, they shout hello. Where did you get that hat?